Hi, I'm Mauro Porcini, PepsiCo's Chief Design Officer. Join me for our new series where we dive into the minds of the greatest innovators of our time, with the goal of finding what drives them in their professional journey and in their personal life. Trying to uncover the universal truths that unite anyone attempting to have a meaningful impact in the world. This is In Your Shoes. Design schools have a responsibility to recruit a diverse student population and expose the students prior to declaring their majors to just how valued design is within the business community as well as its viability as a career. We also need teachers to expose high school-level students to the possibility of design as a career. I'm quoting our guest of today. As one of the most renowned design recruiters in the world, she helps leaders build and grow their businesses by identifying and recruiting top creative talents for their organizations and by developing or restructuring departments to improve creativity and innovation. For nearly 30 years, her namesake global executive search firm has served a broad spectrum of disciplines and industries, working with companies including Coach, Johnson & Johnson, Nike, Estee Lauder, Virgin, Gap, Herman Miller, Levi Strauss, Mac Cosmetics, and PepsiCo. And she's a frequent guest lecturer with prestigious universities all over America. But what makes her even more interesting is that she's also an established artist with studios in New York and Arizona, and her work has been exhibited in museums and galleries across the United States and internationally, including the Met in New York, the De Young Museum in San Francisco, the Louvre in Paris, the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, and many more. She holds a master's degree from the Rhode Island School of Design and currently serves on the advisory board of the Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art and on the advisory board of the Venture-Based Innovation Program at Arizona State University. Michelle Stoll, welcome to In Your Shoes. Michelle, it's such a pleasure to have you with us today. And you and I met many years ago, in 2011, when you contact me for a position in a, in a wonderful company, by the way. And the same day, the PepsiCo contacted me for the position in PepsiCo. And we've been, I've been talking with both companies and both you and the recruiter of PepsiCo for a few months. And then we know I went, but I really enjoyed so much the experience with you in, in those months and your professionality and your approach that then I decided to actually partner with you in many, many more searches uh, to find the talents in my team uh, when I was in PepsiCo. So today is a pleasure, it's a pleasure to talk with you about talents, design, innovation. Welcome again. Thank you. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Um, it was, it, we did have a great experience, I think, exploring that. Um, of course, I'd read about you and known about your work prior and that opportunity, I think, gave us a chance to get to know each other. And you do get to know each other a little bit differently um, when you're exploring an opportunity with someone, you know, versus only when you're, you know, looking to recruit for their team. So I think it gave us a little bit of a richer uh, foundation for our relationships. I think it was great. I guess I've not been the only one that has been working with you eventually for a position uh, he was a candidate for, and then uh, he became also your client, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, uh, I think it's something like 75 or 80% of our clients and most of our most significant clients in terms of engagements have been with folks that we have met, people that we have met through the course of doing and conducting other searches. 
So that's been a, a big reward, um, really getting to know people in that way. So it was great. I'm looking at what there is behind you. You are right now in your studio upstate New York, right? You are a, you're not just a recruiter. You're also an artist. You have a, a degree in design. Uh, how, how the fact that you are an artist, you are a designer, how that helps you being a good recruiter? Oh, it's a great question. Um, well, there's a huge connection. So when, when I started to recruit, it was very easy for me to understand how to make fits in terms of the visual aspects of design, right? I had strong background in art history, analyzing imagery, comparing imagery. So that, that part of it was very, very easy. Um, art, art and design are not the same, um, but we are all driven to communicate and share ideas, right? So I think that there is a bit of a connection and just in terms of intent and the way we pursue the work we do, but also um, I know what it feels like to, you know, to, to put yourself out there, right? We're presenting work and uh, sometimes it's received well and sometimes it's not. So as a recruiter, I'm judging and evaluating work every day. You know, some candidates are chosen and some are not. Um, so I think that it impacts my work in terms of how I, I come to this from a very careful and sensitive place. So for me, this is business, um, but it's also personal. It's also personal as well. And you, what is your story? You did study uh, at RISD and, and then you, you became a recruiter. How did it happen? It's an interesting trajectory. So I grew up in Miami. Um, I was immersed in great design, actually, in a mid-century home. So Herman Miller, Ames, Snow, Bertoia, Saarinen, this was, these were, the, this were the, the products that my home was filled with. So I knew what design was. Um, I was an only child. I was raised by a single mom. My father died when I was two, and my mother was a nurse. And she had a master's degree also in public administration from NYU. And after my father passed away, decided to pursue her childhood dream of becoming a doctor. And so she started in med school when I was four. So it was a very non-traditional upbringing. Um, at that time, the University of Miami, it's interesting, was located in the stables of the Biltmore Hotel, which at the time was a VA hospital. It was in Coral Gables, actually not far from your office in Miami. Um, we did not have a lot of money. Med school was a struggle. I think the one of the you know important things to know is in terms of just my experiences was there was an ex extreme level of discrimination that the four women in my mother's class were subjected to. Overt and ugly level of harassment by professors who were trying to get these women to quit and um, and, and to leave and leave the program. So. I think part of it was the takeaway that I realized to be successful, I would have to work harder in many cases than men to achieve the same results and also to accept, accept and expect obstacles. I think one of the things that was interesting was that even with all the, the challenges that she faced, my mother was never a cup empty, a half empty person. She was optimistic. Um, she was intense and she was tough and, you know, she had to be. Um, but she was a kind and a compassionate person whose commitment to caring for people really drove her. 
And so what's interesting now is my firm, in addition to fashion and beauty and consumer, a lot of work that we do, I'm um, doing a number of uh, healthcare uh, and technology engagements with companies. And so it feels a little bit on the on that end of the recruiting side, a little bit like coming home. So I wish she was alive that she could see how much the work in these in this area kind of uh, it means to me. But you know, um, it, it's it's it, there's a familiarity and a comfort level for me working with these folks. I think having grown up in med school. Um, and, and and how did you become a, a recruiter? How did it happen? How did you start? What was Right. Hey, you're like, okay, I'm going to be a recruiter. Right. So, well, look, I didn't have an interest in science and I was not on the math team like my mom, who was incredibly bright in, in science and math and all of that. Instead, I was creative. So I decided to pursue a fine art career. I started in sculpture. Um, I was at the University of Wisconsin in Madison for my undergraduate degree and working under a fantastic sculptor named Deborah Butterfield, who creates incredible life-size horses out of junk metal and driftwood. She's quite accomplished, very well known. During the course of you know, my work there, I started to build large-scale installation pieces using a lot of translucent materials, um, tr- uh, plexiglass and glass, and discovered that the glass studio, which was across campus and part of the art department, was led by the founder of the American contemporary glass movement, a, a, an artist named Harvey Littleton. So I moved my work over to that studio and had an amazing experience. Um, I, I dedicated my work and began to focus at that time relatively exclusively in glass and that material and medium and studied. And I experienced tremendous success. My work was included in a number of significant exhibitions, including a really prestigious uh, group exhibition that was organized by the Corning Museum of Glass, but traveled nationally and internationally to the Metropolitan Museum in New York, to the De Young Museum in San Francisco, to the Louvre. So this, I was young, this was an incredible, you know, incredible experience. Corning Museum actually owns the, the piece from that exhibition, and it really launched my professional career. So what happened was I decided, as many artists do, to move to New York. And that included finding a full-time job. So the, the, the Paul Schultz, who's an industrial designer, who, who was the VP of design at Steuben Glass, which was owned by Corning Glassworks, we met through this exhibition because I was in Corning for that opening and, you know, method, des- method designers and, you know, uh, you know, folks that were working at the company. And by the way, Paul um, was Chris Hacker's predecessor at Steuben. So when Paul left his position, it was Chris Hacker that ended up in that role. So it's interesting. And, and Paul, it, he referred me to the premier design search firm led by a brilliant and dynamic woman, Rita Sue Siegel. She was a pioneer. She opened the first design recruiting company. She also is an industrial designer who had been, uh, who attended Pratt and had been the placement director at Pratt. So I had this sort of introduction by a client, but of of course she could not place me. I wasn't a designer. I understood that. Um, And there was a a person on her team who spoke to me and, you know, tried to, you know, be polite, you know, was a client referred me. I think it was a courtesy. And she said, well, you know, like, what kind of skills do you have? 
And I said, well, I, I, you know, I, I was an admin in my mother. My mother's a doctor. I was an admin in her office. And they said, oh, we have an open admin position. So I literally moved to New York for that position. And that's what, and there, and, you know, I, I grew up in the firm. The, the firm worked in graphic and industrial design and architecture and interior design. And I worked my way up quickly um, to be an assistant to her. Um, and it was great. I got to sit next to her while she interviewed the best designers. So it was, an, I mean, literally, you know, literally at her side. Um, and I, I had a great experience working there, learned so much because there were so many other media and design uh, companies that she was working with. And then also the success of my work um, in fine art led me to being accepted into um, the master's degree program at Rhode Island School of Design. And it was in glass in uh, Dale Chihuly's program. Um, he's a very famous glass artist and this was a big deal. So it was, it was a difficult program to be accepted to and I was very excited. So I went to lunch with Rita Sue, planning to resign. And she asked me what I was going to do in school. And I said, you know, I don't know, weigh tables. That's, you know, that's what artists, you know, I don't know, that's what we do, whatever it is. And uh, she smiled. She offered me a remote position recruiting freelance designers and illustrators because I had been doing that already at the, at, the, at the agency. She set me up with a home office. And it, really at that point, I transitioned into, into a, this dual role of, you know, being a, working as an artist and as a design recruiter. So, you know, she, I had an amazing opportunity. She mentored me. She provided the opportunity for me to work in this amazing industry. And um, we stay in touch and I'm forever grateful to her. So, um, you know, at, at, at RISD, I worked in glass and I also began to work on large scale installation sculpture and began to build physical, experiential and environmental works, incorporating sound and light. They were large scale. Um, I made a conscious decision, although I had this master's degree when I finished, I could pursue a teaching career at a university level, but I had already established myself within the firm, was interested in staying in the design industry. So I moved to um, upstate New York after I finished where my then boyfriend, now husband, who's a sculptor and a full-time sculptor, I was planning on moving to Manhattan and instead I moved to the woods, but this is what happened and um, continued to work in both. So the opportunity at Rita Sue's also expanded. I became um, able to work on more and more senior level positions um, and, and eventually was promoted to managing principal at the company. Um, in addition, Rita Sue hired a president for the company from the global retained search firm, Corn Ferry. So this was very interesting because we had grown, the firm had grown up as a contingency firm, very effective, but, you know, very fast paced, working on all kinds of things, competing a, a lot on quality, but also on speed because multiple recruiters would be, you know, sending resumes at the same time. And here was this approach of being so much more strategic and so much more research driven. This was for me a game changer. This was amazing because I was so much more interested in the depth of determining what the better fit was, what the best candidate for the search was, not just who was looking for a job, but who, how to research the best talent for a particular opportunity. 
And so that was an amazing opportunity for me. And the, and, and the company transitioned from a contingency firm to a retained firm. And, and it, it was a wonderful experience. So eventually I was, I was ready to move on. I'd been there for many years. I did a short stint at another recruiting company, which wasn't a good fit. Um, and then I, I decided to open my own firm. This was sort of a shock. When was uh, that? Friends, my family, my husband. I had never expressed interest in opening a business in Manhattan. Um, I, I'm an artist. I'm living upstate. I'm traveling in and out of the city. I'm balancing these things. But, and it was a recession, you know, I didn't have a lot of money. I just couldn't find the next right place to work. I couldn't, I, I, I met with a number of other recruiting firms. I just, I couldn't find the right place. So, so I did it. I opened this, I opened this company. Um, and what, what year? This is 1991, really long time ago. So it was, it was uh, the first of my fourth downturns, right? So we're in the fourth one now. So, as you know, so it was, but it was an interesting time. I was mentored by another terrific woman, a woman named Bonnie Lund, who led a search firm. She worked on really senior business side searches and advertising. So she would work on like the CEO of a major advertising conglomerate like Omnicom. So a powerhouse in her own right, amazingly successful. Um, she had built a beautiful office uh, designed by Cloda, who's a wonderful interior designer. And there were three other search firms in this, in this office. So Bonnie's, and then there was a, another agent, another uh, search firm that placed advertising, art directors, creative directors, and copywriters, and then another that placed PR. So what was great was that my practice brought design to this cons consortium office. So it was a community. Um, it was, you know, it was, a, it was a great place to work. And Bonnie was amazing. She, she had a small office there to rent. And then she had another one that was quite large. So I wanted to rent the small one. I was, you know, just getting started. She refused. She, I, I, she said, I will not rent that office to you. And I, I said, why? Like, why not? Why? You know, she said, I am sure that you will be successful. You will outgrow this office and then you'll have to move out because someone else will be in that space. Um, we want you to stay. Um, I could not afford it. And she actually insisted and loaned me the rent to start the business. I was very independent. So I was going to do this on my own. She loaned me the money for the rent. And um, I mean, this was on top of student loans I had taken out to attend, you know, RISD for my master's program, but I, I did it. And I, uh, I paid her back the first month and never had an issue making the rent again. It was great. So this is theme for me. It's uh, strong women, my mom, Rita Sue, Bonnie. So I, I've seen that as a really an amazing, amazing gift. And I've encouraged many other people, not just women, but many other people who are questioning really whether to pursue their own businesses. Because frankly, without someone in the industry who believed in me, uh, taking that leap would have been much more difficult. You know, this is, this has been a wonderful career. I'm so genuinely passionate about it. It started out as a means to an end. You know, I, 
I, I joke with designers, I could be doing this or flipping burgers, right? Like I could be, I could be waiting tables or doing something completely different. This is so much better. I love this. And it's developed really into a true love. There's so, so much inspiration in, uh, in the story and so many uh, insights, so many learnings. Uh, first of all, you say that the strength of few women that really impacted your life and were your inspiration, but they were also your mentors, your sponsor. You were open to receive and they decided to give to you. I think for, for all of us, for many of us that eventually arrived to a certain achievement in life, they're in a certain position. This is a reminder that we should always try to give back, always try to help people that are at the beginning of the journey. And then it's a story of resilience, of optimism, of flexibility, adaptability, that are many of the characteristics of successful leaders. Actually, about that, <laughs> what defines a great leader? What do you look for when you, when you try to find a good leader? What characteristics? Um, well, you know, I think it's, for me, it starts with vision and passion. But it really, it really ultimately is framed by integrity. Because for me, this is the key criteria really for, for everything, right? So personally and professionally, everything is impacted by that. But obviously leadership, uh, authenticity, humility, I think is so important um, str- uh, for them to be strategic, but also, and most importantly, for them to be courageous. I think that a, that a leader needs to be not adverse to risk and being willing to bring people along with them and can inspire those people to to travel with them, to be with them, to join them. Do they need to be also kind, nice people? There are many leaders that are not, especially in the design world, in the fashion world, in any world actually, but and they've been very successful. But then right. there are there are others that are kind, that are beautiful to work with, people that you trust naturally. And you think is an important characteristic or, or is not necessary? It's just you can well, have it or eventually not. I think it's very important. I mean, I think that um, it's what kind of human are they, right? Like, what are they made of? So, of course, that's, for me, you know, it keeps coming back to integrity, which for us is our leading criteria that shapes everything. But I, I, I do believe that the ability to inspire has to transcend so that people feel good about who the leader is they are working with and for. And I, I think it's crucial. I think it's imperative. And what about the successful designer? I'm, I'm sure he needs to have all, or he or she needs to have all of these characteristics. What else? Something more? So I think it starts, of course, with the passion to share ideas. I think that's where we have some of the common denominators in the arts. But And, and of course, talent. I think, I think there's an inherent sort of talent that, that makes a difference. But a great listener a really effective communicator, somebody who's compassionate and empathetic and can, can understand that, to a problem solver, um, again, willingness to take risks. But I think that the drive to make a positive impact in the world is what really differentiates, I think, the designers that are the ones that their work resonates so much. I think, I think you sense that in their intent. That sense of purpose. Today, purpose is such a 
trendy word also in the business community. You want to add purpose to any brand is something any marketer talks about, but is really what defines uh, the creative community, you know, the sense of purpose in life on anything they do. Right. And so the, 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 the other characteristic that I always search in the people I, I, I recruit, and you know it very well, is the ability to work with each other. Uh, for many, many years, I gave it for granted. I, take it, I took it for granted. I, right. I, I thought it was just, you know, normal obviously you need that and i've been very very lucky in all these years to be able to build my own teams i I never arrived somewhere finding a team that was already there and had to uh, find a way to work with a team so i i've been in a unique situation and that became also a blind spot for me because i realized that something like this is not that common and when i had to be part of teams outside of the design world with other functions i realized that it was not that obvious. This, this ability to work together, to, to really be there for each other, help each other and work towards a vision. How do you find people that have that kind of mindset? It's so difficult. You know, in my case, for instance, I have one hour to decide if somebody has it or, or doesn't. Obviously, that's why then I, I work with people like you <laughs> that advise us on the right choices. But how do you find those people? And, but mostly, how do you recognize them? People that can work with each other, team players. I, obviously, I think it's so important for the way that individuals frame who they are, their experiences, and the way those experiences or, or, the, or the accomplishments you know, occurred. And the way that they tell a story, the way that they describe those experiences informs us, right? So I think that's the key piece. Some are basic, just the, you know, if they refer to themselves, of course, versus their team. But I think it's bigger and deeper than that, right? Because when we're looking for leaders at a very senior level, which we're doing regularly, it's the broader sense of how they structure and their teams function and the way they engage respect and collaborate, not only internally in the organizations that they build, but the stakeholders, because the, you know, the magic happens, right? When the integration occurs with the business side, the marketing side, manufacturing, engineering, all of those things, right? So when you begin to hear those stories include those relationships, I I think that that's the part that I think tells us more. Yeah. You mentioned the world of business and other functions, R&D, engineering. Uh, you have been hiring designers for many years now. And, and in, in all those years, society has changed and the world of business has changed. And design uh, is probably more important than ever in, in society and in the business world. There are chief design officer positions, there are entire teams. Look at the, the case of PepsiCo or, or as many. Well, uh, what did it change in the past 30 years? What's different today than a few decades ago? So, you know, I, I think that there, there's a recognition. I mean, I think that design existed in the delivery of so many products and services prior, but I don't. I don't know that it was recognized 
and included in the same way. Now, beyond that, design has an opportunity to lead. So we, so I, we have now such an integrated sort of way that we, that we engage with products and services and experiences from our homes, communication, our devices, our phones, our entertainment and media, uh, the way our cars function, right? Like every, it, now there is a level of integration that's occurring in our lives where there's a crossover. And so it, I think that this is a key piece and this is a key differentiator because it's touching us so, from in so many ways, in such deeper ways, um, personally, professionally, that I believe, you know, businesses recognize it. Of course, the obvious easy example is Apple, right? So, you know, all of us who worked in design thought, oh my goodness, it's the largest market cap company in the world. Now every, every company will get the value here, right? Like what, what more of a case do, does design need to make? Right, that 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 this can drive the, the largest market cap company in the world, and it was so interesting because some companies got the memo and some pump companies didn't. You know, right? So it's still more uh, there's still more pioneering to be done, right? Like it's, it's everything's not a complete done deal. So there's opportunities, I think, for designers to still carve out those op- the, you know those situations where they can impact. But I think also what's shifting is that design is having more of a seat at the table and when they do successfully of course it just it just prepares the land for for more right so i I think that there's just this kind of overwhelming quantity of touch points and designers stepping up to uh, contribute in a way that uh, across so many media that's shifted the way we are what our expectations are in terms of what products or services or or experiences uh, and how they deliver. You say something was very (laughs) fun and insightful. Some companies got the memo about Apple and the power of design in in the business world and some companies didn't. For the one for the ones that didn't, or eventually they got the memo, but they're still trying to figure it out. It's in a language that they don't really understand completely. Uh, You need, in designers, I mean, you need business leaders that get it, but if they don't, then you need designers that are able to create awareness about the value of design. And and at the end of the day, in the past many years, I realized that essentially that's design work too. We are designing culture. We are, and you can apply design thinking, the idea of empathy, strategy, and prototyping, even to design culture, something as abstract as an organization, culture inside. A company, and you have been partnering with me to find this kind of talents and find this kind of profiles. And what I try to share every time with my own organization, especially with the HR team, for instance, is that by itself, this is an innovation project. By itself, this is really about creating, shaping something that never existed before. And therefore, there will be failures. There will be mistakes. It's part of innovation. If you don't have it, it means, it means you're not really innovating. So I guess uh, you as myself, you know, in, in our journeys, we have been making uh, failures and mistakes. How, how do you manage those failures and those mistakes when they happen, when you innovate and they happen? 
uh, do you mean on, you mean on the on the on the hiring side? It could be maybe you know you were sure about a candidate and it didn't work out, or you were sure about a specific kind of organization in a company. You tried to to advise the company to do that and it didn't work out. You know, many many different examples uh, that can happen. In, in, of course, in- oh, so. I mean, we're fortunate. We're fortunate that the vast majority—I think maybe you know—a a vast majority of percentages of things work out. But to your point, all these these organizations are new, right? So when they're 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 developing cultures, right? They're developing community and they're developing skill sets and structure. So I think that does happen. Um, in terms of specific examples, so years ago we placed the leader of uh to to lead an innovation design capability in a major corporate team candidate had a significant experience was really a great communicator and leader and a wonderful person you know inspiring person but uh, for instance the reality of the situation was that his experience was let's say too academic right too too maybe theoretical and the skills that were needed to lead initiatives to be executed or to market successes were not demonstrated fast enough. Maybe they were there, but the, the pacing of the candidate and the pacing of the organization, what the organization needed to validate sort of was, was not aligned well. So, uh, you know, that was, you know, that was a fit that was really difficult. It was a, you know, a huge initiative with a lot of investment and, and, and that person, you know, the client, they made the decision to part ways. But, you know, we don't make the, the final hiring decisions with our clients, right? So what we, a client does, we make presentations and, and, and we present usually multiple candidates and clients choose. So to, together, we're probably pretty good. We're 97%, whatever. But sometimes things do not work out. And the key piece is to work with the company to determine, like, what? What do we miss here? What was not aligned? What do we need that's different? Because sometimes in a new organization, you need to figure it out, and it you you know you you need to solve it. It's it, it in itself the you know that type of mix of skills and the approach and the speed in which you pursue certain initiatives versus others. You sort of need to figure out like what's going to resonate here, what's going to be successful here. I mean, luckily in this situation. Um, the client came back to us. We, t- we had the opportunity to work with them again to find a leader who had much clear uh, experience in commercialization, had clear industry experience, clear commercialization experience, and, and they're in place. So, you know, you, you know, look, we're retained. So our, our placements are guaranteed, you know, within a particular period of time. But more importantly, because we work with, I think, almost, we're, I think at 99% of our clients are repeat. So we're often working with companies over time on multiple hires. And we could say, okay, this is the learning. Let's adjust. We need to adjust here and we need to be really, really clear. So obviously on that second search, the criteria of that, you know, fast to market ability to look short and long-term initiatives were taken into account. And I think with a better sense of clarity both on our side as well as the client side on what needed to be there for this to work. Um, that's a collaboration. You know, that that's a true collaboration between us and our and our client partners. 
Yeah, you, you mentioned a word that is a key word, partnership over time. Uh, again, as in innovation, when you launch a new product or a new brand, uh, imagine you launch the product and then whatever, you know, you move on to the next project without understanding if that product is doing well, is doing wrong, is, is failing. And if it's failing, then there is so much learning from the failure that you can extract, that can become insight for your next project. But if you're not engaged, and this is true for the relation between a company and the recruiter, and this is also true for a design team working, for instance, with a design agency or, or with any kind of partner, if there is not a long-term partnership, it's very difficult to drive innovation. You can, you can drive short-term short projects, often will be successful, often won't be. But the reality is that if you really want to change the game, is a, is a long-term partnership that we, we need to put in place. I, I am completely convinced of this. Uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, at the beginning of our conversation, the role of uh, your mother and then the struggle that she found uh, from, uh, along her life in, uh, when she was studying and, and beyond. And, and then also your struggle in certain situations. Uh, this is a problem that many minorities are having today. Could be driven by gender, it could be driven by the color of your skin. Uh, how important it is in your mind the idea of diversity when you need when you drive innovation, when you have a team, when you try to uh, drive anything with creativity and with different points of views? How, how important it is, and why do you think it's not happening? Why, <laughs> you know, there are not there is not enough diversity in these organizations uh, that that we witness that we have in front of us every day. Right. Well, first of all, I think it's incredibly important. I mean, I think um, creating a team is like making a painting, right? It's a, there's a palette of talent. And so disparate points of view are important. Um, that, that enriches collaboration, you know, not approaching the mission in the same way can create better, um, outcomes. So I think that that's a, that the crucial, the crucial piece. The challenge always is the timing of finding a, a diversity candidate for a particular hire, right? So the issue is always, you know, does, does this, do, do the candidates have the talent that we need? Can we find the candidates who have the talent we need at the right time? Not to say that they're not there, but there's, and I'll answer the second part of that question in a minute, because I have ideas about how do we help address this? But um, so I think that the, I, I think that there's a piece of it that because there's there's less uh, options, you know, there's there's you know the industry at, at overall doesn't have as diverse talent as it needs and requires to be effective um, as candidates present along the way. Whether or not there's openings, I think companies are now going to be a lot more sensitive to the fact like. I don't want to miss this person. I've got to make a place for them on my team because I need the I need what they can bring and their perspective and their point of view. So I think that will shift. I think the hiring situations will shift, but I do think that talent still needs to lead, and I think that that's the challenge that we're facing as we're coming up. I mean, I'm working on a number of searches currently that diversity was a is a huge issue. Um, and I think it will 
participate in shifting businesses. So for instance, 60, per seven, 60 to 70% of the all board searches now in the United States are including for, uh, are, are pursuing women and, and diversity on their boards. So this is a very big shift. The second piece is how do we identify and, and hopefully cultivate more talent? This has to start, this is below, uh, this is before high school, before college. This is in a high school level. So that the education, the foundation of education and exposure to design and creative and innovation, creative industries as true, uh, you know, careers, you know, rewarding and careers that people can make a good living if they're, you know, they're educated, highly educated, that these careers exist and to attract a candidate base across the board. And I think that you can try to sort of make it up later, but the only, I think the only true transformation will occur if we can reach, um, you know, smart and talented people before they make their education decisions at the university level. Um, and I know that the outreach, I think this is a key piece of the schools um, and the outreach that's happening. Um, you know, I have a relationship with Art Center. Um, you know, you know, Chris is there. I've had a relationship with the school over the years, but of course, Chris Hacker, um, who used to be uh, the chief design officer at J&J and a, and a partner of ours, we've, we've worked on many, many searches with him, is now the dean of industrial design. And they're working, for instance, on outreach programs. And I think it's across the board um, that that universities are recognizing that they need to recruit the talent for their programs at an earlier juncture. Some, some schools have a relationship with Arizona State University as well, um, and they have a very diverse uh, student population, primarily because it's international, right? So, so it's happening, but it, it, it needs to happen in a more comprehensive way for it to truly achieve what we're looking for it to achieve, which is rich and diverse teams that are not difficult to build, but, you know, common that it's not a unique thing, but it's, a, it's an integrated thing in our business and studios. Every company should just understand that this is, before anything else, an amazing opportunity to drive different point of views to any kind of issue and problem that are so important to, at the end, create value for the company, to drive innovation, to really uh, drive new ideas inside the organization. That, that should be the starting point. Then on top of it, we also have the ethical responsibility as a company, you know, the big ones especially, to help this community accelerating that journey that starts already with the schools, with high schools and before, building awareness about the opportunities that there are and helping them grow in no matter the constraints that they may have in their society and their, in their different situations. Uh, you talk about the value and the importance of, of the candidates they need to step up. You know, they, 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 they have a very active role in all of this, obviously. Uh, and today we live in a world uh, where our lives are on stage uh, in, in social media, in many different ways. Even if, if it's not in our own social media, it could be in the ones of others. Yeah. And social media is, a, it could be, a wonderful opportunity to leverage as a candidate, as a talent, or it could be also a problem to manage or a threat if you don't do it right. 
Uh, and again, if you decide not to do it, it's something that is a lever that you are not really leveraging once again. Uh, how important it is personal branding and the, and the role of social media uh, for a candidate today? Uh, any time we, we review a candidate, we can easily go online and find uh, so, so much about that person. So how important it is for each of us uh, the idea of personal branding managed on these new social media platforms. No, I, I think it's very important. It's very interesting. Um, and it does start as uh, it does start I and mean, encourage students. And I can, I, I can mention to you, I have, I do some programs in schools really as a give back. And one of the things, and I can talk to you a little bit about what that is about, which is on a different topic, but, which is about researching and strategizing career moves and, and modeling your career based on where you want to go, right? Like helping you're so strategic in your creative work. How, how can you be more strategic in your career, right? So, well, part of that is also to build that, to make a decision about that personal branding and the use of social media, because as you know, it's all over the place, right? So I do believe that people should have clear, really well-framed information, especially on a professional site like LinkedIn. I mean, I think this is so basic. It's such a tool. It's amazing to me how many, uh, how many professionals still are not sort of paying as much attention as they could or should in terms of the access, because it's really your, it's a portal into the world. You know, I was, as you, I, you know, you, you had me talk about dates. So, you know, I'm, I began to work before we had the advantage of LinkedIn. It was a lot of different kinds of research. This is so, this is so helpful, right? To find out, you know, to find who people are and to really be able to clearly um, establish that. I, I encourage people to also consider have, having, a, if they, depending on what they want to include, to have a very a private, close friend and family platform versus a more public and professional one to really help to create and divide. So if there's, you know, especially for younger uh, uh, talent, it, so that they don't end up with things that they'll regret when the HR uh, <laughs> reference checking occurs um, on social media. But more importantly, this is an opportunity to continue to frame and reframe yourself and, and, you know, to take a stand, to show what you're looking at, to show what, you respect, you know, so it's this ongoing thread that helps to complete us because we can, we can talk about topics with so many people, um, you know, in a, in a such an immediate way and respond and, 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 and engage. So I definitely encourage it. I mean, I don't think it's mandatory. Some incredible folks are not participating in it. I don't think it's, it's a requirement, but I do think it being thoughtful is a really, really important, a, a really, really important piece of it. And, um, and, and I think more and more will be more and more necessary. Michelle, I could go on and on and on for hours to talk with you, uh, but, but we have to close to wrap up. So I want to thank you for, for the insights and the information and the advices that you share with us today. Very inspirational. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you, Mauro. Thank you.